and welcome aboard, ladies and gentlemen. This is Nick. And Janelle. And it's a very hot, what is it, 88 degrees, 89 or something like that? Something Last like that. Last check, yeah. That's, is this about the hottest we've had it so far? Uh, it was 90, well, it was 92 earlier today, but I think it was 92 the other day. Good grief. Also, that was straight in the sun yeah. when it said 92, yeah. so... I got this. I, I, I've reached the age where I have to get one of these. Uh, my father-in-law had an outdoor sensor thingamajig, and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So I got one of those, and then I got the sensor and bought a little housing for it that keeps it um, w protected from water, but air can still flow through it. And I stuck it on one of the 4 by 4s uh, on the deck, uh, and it's supposed to be out of the shade, but I think at some point the sun hits that thing and it's like, man, it's really hot out here. And it, so it kind of gives a reading that might not necessarily be correct. Well, the sun was really warm. I enjoyed sitting in it earlier. Uh -huh. Oh, cool. I was in my office during that time, so I'm glad you enjoyed it. You were asleep in the bed, babe. Oh, was that Is that the... your office? <laughs> oh, I guess not. Yeah. I did take a nap when I came home. I was tired. All right. So um, I'm, I'm going to jump right into this because this is kind of a, a heavy topic um, of sorts. Um, and uh, if you hear any racket, it's because the dogs have been fed. And as, a, as hard as I may try to make things a little quieter, so they're kind of put away in their kennels and they, they've been fed, somebody inevitably has to step on the pan and go, wham! You know, just, so if you hear racket back there, it's just clumsy German shepherds. That's all it is. And Kaiser is no longer used to be crated because he's free range most of the time. He hasn't yep. been crated since Easter. Easter. Yeah. So anyway, but he, he went in there. I was like, all right, guys, time to eat. And away he went. He's like, yeah, I know the drill, even though I don't really go there very often. But anyway. <laughs> so um, today I want to talk a little bit about modesty and for those of you out there that are going, it's it's going to it definitely is going to be in relation to the CHM. But and for some of you who may be like, oh wow, you're 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 gonna, I really want to listen to this. It's time to just cut them apart, and you're gonna tell us exactly how we should. No, you're, it's the wrong wrong podcast. We're not doing that. Um, I understand that people are from all walks of life, and that the Holy Spirit has them at different levels. Not everybody's the same. And um, the problem that um, I've kind of detected is that it, and growing up in the conservative holiness movement, there was a, um, you know, your outward dress tended to speak louder than the inner characteristics of a person. And... Um, there was, everyone was always trying to define modesty. Um, and I'm getting ahead of myself. But I want to talk about modesty today. And specifically focusing on Deuteronomy 22.5. Now, um, some of you who have been in the conservative holiness movement are still there. Uh, or maybe not in it. Uh, and maybe you're, you've had nothing to do with it at all. You're from a different denomination. Or maybe you're not in church at all. And you're just curious. Um, Deuteronomy 22.5, for uh, as long as I can remember and before that, um, you know, for, for years, probably hundreds of years, who, who knows how long, it has been a, um, it's been a, a, a staple um, in the church for uh, supporting that 
a man and a woman should dress differently, that there is a distinction in the way you dress. And that has been, that has translated to, um, men wear pants, women wear skirts, dresses, and the lot. So there is a difference. Deuteronomy 22.5 sets that precedence. Okay. Um, and you'll see there's forums and things like that. People will get in there and they'll have heated discussions and inevitably 22.5 is thrown out there. Um, it is the backbone for that understanding of men in slacks, women in skirts. So I'm not here today to define uh, the pants and the slacks or the pants and the, and the skirts. My goal today is to define that verse, what it was doing, who it was written to, and what was going on. And it is, I, I've, I've gone through and I've seen so many articles and Facebook posts and Facebook blogs and YouTube videos. Everybody talks about Deuteronomy 22.5 or modesty through the eyes of a Western person, through the eyes of Western civilization, through the eyes of an American churchgoer. But what does that text really mean? And if we're going to get there, we have to go to the Jewish side of things. Because that's where it started. That's where it comes from. So to kick us off, the first point I want to look at is why should we better understand modesty? Why should we better understand it? So there's, a, there's three points, and I've got a lot of little sub points, and I'm very proud of myself, and an old pastor friend of mine would be very proud of me because, man, when it came to some, I didn't, I wasn't good enough to get acronyms in here, but I have like three hows, and I have three S's, and three D's, and four A's, you know, for these different things. Like, I felt really proud that I got everything all lined <laughs> up really nice. It looks very neat. I feel like I'm organized. <laughs> so I can keep my thoughts here. So generally, I'm just like swerving all over the freeway trying to pull my, not literally, but I'm trying to pull my thoughts together and get something cohesive here. But I, for this, I wanted to make sure that I was as organized as I could get. <laughs> um, but the perplexity in the body of Christ, there, there, is, there is confusion in the body of Christ concerning modesty. Um, number one, how far do we go? Uh, are you, there's too conservative or too liberal. Uh, people have different viewpoints. How, how do we know who's right? And how do we separate man's word versus God's word. And um, you will hear from different sermons, people will start to um, raise discussions about, well, maybe it's time we re-examine some of these things because there are some things within the CHM that have been practiced for years, decades, and there's no scriptural backing for them. Um, inevitably, when you do that, the compromise word comes to surface. Oh, yes. And um, they will say, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, quote, I'm trying to quote James Plank the best that I can, something to the effect of, it was good enough for the old timers, it's good enough for us. Something I'm paraphrasing, but something along those lines. Um, and I have to disagree because not always. Not always. There, there are things that, that do change, things have to change. Some of you may be aware. Culture of, changes. It, yes, it does. That some of you may be aware of a. Um, I was just exposed to it yesterday, a recording of a church service in the Bible Missionary Church. It had to have been within the past fifteen years because they were talking about DVD players and things like that. That was relevant then. 
Uh, so it kind of sets a date, but they were singing a song about why they're glad in the BMC, why they're glad to be in the BMC. And they were, um, they don't want anything holding them down, not the DVDs, not the internet, not the county fair. And they were listing a lot of things and people were shouting and praising the Lord. And I could not help but feel it's amusing at first, but then it becomes so sad. And I thought to myself, that is how you are, that's how you're going to know God. You're, you're going to know him. Your relationship with God is going to be that small. Your ability to understand God and his magnificence and his glory and who he truly is is going to be that small. And it's a shame. Is a lot of those people going to make it to heaven? Absolutely. But I think a problem has been where people start to, uh, because there's no definition of things, there's no definition of standards, there's no definition of any of that. It, it's, it's different from different places, you, from the places you go. It just kind of bounces around and, and different folks enforce different things. And because of that confusion, uh, people ask questions. Um, and it causes problems. People leave. They look for solutions elsewhere. And you, you should. Um, next, there's an issue with pride in the body of Christ. Um, the, the body of, when I, when I, well, I should probably rephrase that too. There's pride within the, it could, well, I guess it could be in the body of Christ, but specifically because of our upbringing, I'm dealing with mm -hmm. the CHM. Um, there's a singularity, which is, they, they, there's a, something that you have that's a unique trait. It's a uniform that sets you apart, and there can be pride in that. And there definitely is that kind of pride. The posts that I've seen and some things that people have said recently, um, there is definitely a pride issue going on with regards to the movement and how they look. It's, it's like an identifying, their look is an identifying factor. It's an element that they're extremely proud of. Um, and they feel that it does so much to... Um, show who they are uh, and identify them as being so close to God because of what they're wearing, what the women are wearing. Um, solidarity. It's a common bond that unites them. There's pride through that. It allows them to feel we are all doing this. We are all in this together. We are all in a place where we are closest to God and no one else necessarily is. We are at that, we are at the apex. We are at the pinnacle of spiritual achievement. We are there together doing this and we're united in that effort. And then there's superiority. And it's, they feel it's a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of where they're at. And that has caused some discussion, uh, specifically because of the revival at Asbury and other things that were taking place around the country in different churches and other denominations other than the CHM. And it caused people within the CHM to start questioning, saying, well, if we are where we need to be, why, why isn't God's presence felt so strongly with us? Why is it at a Bible college that compared to us looks absolutely lost? And you know, um, I'm not intentionally using his name, but it's just James Blank. He, he, it, it's a, he finds himself <laughs> in he the forefront himself, of a yeah. lot of this, you know, and, and there's other people too. And, and, and I'm not slamming James Plank at all. I think that the man feels he's doing what, what is right. 
in some of the things that he says. I think he feels like he's a crusader for the CHM, and he's he's at the front, and he's going to be the buffalo, and he's going to put his head down, and he's going to take the blizzards head on. And and okay, I, I respect and commend that, but there also has to be some some give. There has to be some understanding. There has to be a little bit of there, there's you got to be able to have some tact as well. But there is a superiority that has uh, come with the um, way that they identify themselves, with the way that they uh, convey themselves, and that, hey, why is there a revival happening over here? We are at the top. We are doing everything that needs to be done. We are closest to God. Why is he moving over here? Why isn't he moving with us? And it has caused a little bit of, uh, and I mentioned this in the last podcast, I think it had, men- it had caused a little bit, almost like a jealousy. Uh, you know, why, why would God be with them? You know, and, and honestly, it causes probably a little bit of uh, concern because it's like, well, if, if God is saving people over there, if God is healing people over there, then, then is, is, that, is that really God? Because God's mm-hmm. with us. We feel God's with us. Well, they can't be with you. You don't look the part. And that's the key. They right. don't look the part. Mm-hmm. Next, um, the third point here in, in this, why should we better understand modesty is personal interpretation in the body of Christ. There's different flavors from different pastors. And that is what is so confusing in the CHM because no two churches are alike. I don't care if they're in the Bible Methodist or the Bible Missionary or the your Midwest Pilgrim from your background. Um, you go to one church or the other, and, and I know they're going to have their own set of standards. Like you'll have, let's say the Bible Methodist. Okay, the Bible Methodist has their set of standards, okay? Um, or in my case, I grew up Bible Methodist Connection of Tennessee. They have their own set of standards, okay? They have their rules. They've got their bylaws. They've got all this stuff set out. But you can go to one church, and you're going to hear different things preached on versus another church. And um, one pastor is going to be um, completely clamping down on X, Y, and Z, but another pastor at another church within the same denomination is for X, Y, and Z, and he instead is going to be preaching against A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. So there's a lot of personal interpretation that takes place, and inevitably that creates some confusion. And um, there's, there's no... There, there's, there's just no cohesion there. There, it's just kind of like, you know, it, it, I don't know. I guess you would say that technically the churches are rather decentralized, uh, because it's kind of like they kind of, when it comes to the things that are preached from the pulpit, they just kind of run with themselves. You know, they run with their own thing. Um, they all have this underlying foundation that they stand on, uh, but when it comes to standards, when it comes to you know, I guarantee you that one church may be okay with you coming in with short sleeves. Another one, it won't be. Uh, one might be okay with people having their hair trimmed. Another one won't be. There's really that lack of consistency, if you will, um, in, in some of these places. And um, it's just a result of different flavors from the pastors. You have different flavors from the congregations. And so that backfires, potentially, on a, on a new pastor. Mm-hmm. New pastor comes in, and uh, he's he's reading the word, and he's understanding it for what it is. He goes into a CHM church. He starts to preach, and the congregation goes, oh, wait a minute. We don't agree with you. And it could be something completely minor. And there's been pastors that have left some of these churches because the congregation just didn't want to listen to the thing they say. It's it's not sitting well. Um, uh, there, 
there was a, uh, a guy I was talking to one time. He said, you know, there was a denomination he was in. And he said the denomination that he was in, um, they, he said, you know, we're against women wearing pants. He said, we're against all this different stuff. He said, we're against smoking, you name it. But there was one church way out in the country. And he said, that church out in the country, he said, they were against everything too. He said, but don't you dare preach on smoking there. Because all those old geezers had a pipe, didn't they? No, because they farmed tobacco. Oh. <laughs> 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 they farm tobacco. <laughs> you go there, you don't touch that. <laughs> because you are you're gone. <laughs> and I think they just kind of, the, the connection looked at that one church and was like, leave them alone. <laughs> don't mess with them. They've got that. They're a great bunch of folks, but they got that one flaw. <laughs> so, um, and then there's different flavors from individuals, uh, from individual congregants. Well, you also have you have to look at the culture of the um, the area you're in. It's just like when a hospital gets bought out by a bigger umbrella mm-hmm. hospital, and then that one a bigger umbrella. Mm-hmm. They sometimes forget that the community hospitals have different needs than something say yeah. in New York City. Whereas it's the same with any of the big congregations or those big umbrella conferences where you may have a church that is in Appalachia that may have, or as you guys say, Appalachia, um, that may have different needs because the different, they're a different culture than you might have in suburbia, Indiana. Yeah. Yeah, a friend of mine one time um, came to visit our church, and she looked at our prayer request list, and she saw the cancer list, and she said, my goodness, what's wrong with you all? Welcome to Ohio Valley. It's the Ohio Valley. Another friend of mine said that when she was actually in her chiropractic classes, they said, do not practice in the Ohio Valley because of the health issues there. And people have told me for years it's because in the valley between the hills, Stuff gets trapped. There used to be a lot of industry, and you go through it. I remember crossing the bridge as a kid, looking down the Ohio River, and it was just a fog, just hazy. You really couldn't see it. Now a lot of that industry is gone. Man, it's crystal clear for miles. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously that did contribute to a point. And I would say probably, yes, people have lost jobs. People's health may have also gone up a little bit. You know, or health, you know, the, out, the, uh, the outlook on their health may have gone up a bit. I, I, you know, I don't know. But... Anyway, there, there's going to be different flavors of individuals in the congregations. You're going to have that brother so-and-so or that sister so-and-so in that church who is the stick in the mud, who is the problem, who is the person who will nitpick everything. Um, you know, and, and, and will anything you do out of if it's according to what, if it goes against what he feels is, is right or wrong, um, he's going to expect to hold you to what his beliefs are, even though it may not be scriptural. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is. Maybe you don't have light on it yet. So there's that going on. Then you also have persecution in the body of Christ. You say, how in the world can there be persecution in the body of Christ when it comes to standards and when it comes to modesty? Well, absence of fellowship. That's the first one. So, so if you don't fit in, if you uh, don't look the part, well, people generally will. They'll just cut you loose. Uh, they may not talk to you. They may not speak with you. They may not invite you. I saw something here recently. Somebody was talking. They said they don't really live uh, as uh, modest or according to a lot of the holiness standards as they once did. And they have found themselves, uh, they're no longer invited to different things. What other people are that they are related to, 
um, to the same functions, they're, they're left out. And it's because they're different now. Um, and it's just, you're not, you're not part of the club anymore. I mean, it sounds kind of dumb to say, but or weird, maybe I could put it that way, but you're not, you're not part of the club anymore. Uh, if you're not going to, if you're not going to look like a member and you're not going to pay your dues, well, I'm just not going to talk to you. You know, I don't, which is I, ridiculous. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to talk to you. Anymore. I was asked about the health of my hair because I had made a post about how um, my hair had been so unhealthy and I was so happy to have it back and the curls were back. And mm -hmm. so I had a lady very conservative, very sweet ask me how I did it. And I was flat out on Facebook. You're not going to like this answer, mm -hmm. but I got the unhealthy parts of my hair cut mm -hmm. and I keep it trimmed for the health of my hair. And, um, to this day, I don't think she has said another word to me. And I don't think it's one of those things where, Oh, I'm not talking to her. I just think, that's something she could never possibly do. Right. So she doesn't know what to do with it. So then she doesn't do anything with it. Well, that's my second one. Absence of communication. If you're not going their direction, they're just not going to talk to you because it's a waste of time. Why, why, why would I spend time fellowshipping with you if you're not on the same level? Hmm. I wonder if we had that attitude about everyone, how many um, people would be lost well, this goes back to the whole bubble thing that we talked about last week. Mm -hmm. People in their bubble, they talk inside that bubble. If you're not in that bubble, I'm just not going to communicate with you. And and that goes both ways because it hurts those both in and outside the bubble. Because mm -hmm. you're inside the bubble, you're isolated. And you really don't know what's going on outside. And your influence is, 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 is uh, hurt as well. Um, the absence of unity, even though... Oh, I talked to a pastor friend of mine last night. And... He, he put the, he worded this so well. He said the CHM has uh, uniformity, but it does not have unity. And I was like, oh, man, that is so good. Mm -hmm. Because that's truly what's going on. It has uniformity in how it looks. You go to the IHC and everybody looks the same. But there's a lack of unity in the body of Christ. Because that church... Well, you don't want to go there because right. they let their women cut, cut right. their hair. They have pants. Right. So you don't want to talk to them. Let me tell you what was so cool. Down where I used to live, there was a, uh, way back growing up, there was a curve in the road. It was a little S-curve. And there were literally, at one point, four or five churches that were on that curve. One was a black church. One was Pentecostal. Another one was like a Methodist. The other one was a Baptist. I forget what the other one was. And they would, about every couple of months, they would have this um, song fest thing where they would hold services at each other's churches and they mm. would all sing in the choirs. And that was what those churches did. And even though they had separate congregations, the people respected one another, they knew one another, and they fellowshiped with one another. But that will not, I'm not saying that's always the case, but you won't see that happen um, in the CHM necessarily. There are churches, even within the CHM, who have bitterness between them about different problems. Uh, somebody gets hurt at one, goes to the other one, they spread that whatever about what happened to them, and it creates mm -hmm. a little bit of anxiety towards the other one. And, and there's different churches. Uh, there was somebody out there talking at one time who said there were two different churches in this one town that literally hated each other. And if he's listening, he's going to know who I'm talking about here, and he'll, he'll, he'll know that he... Um, I think he, he didn't tell me this. I heard it, heard him talk about it. 
But it's like that shouldn't be the case. But there's that division that causes a problem. Um, there's an absence of communication. There's an absence of unity, even though there is uh, uniformity. And there's an absence of Christ-like character. There's a, there's a lack of that Christian morality, that integrity, and that uh, just that Christ-likeness. It's missing. Well, because they're trying to be the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and direct everyone. And if everyone doesn't fall into the line that they think that that person should, mm-hmm. then we can't talk to them. All these different things we've discussed here, this is all the introduction for why we're having this conversation. Like, why are, why are we talking about this? And it's because we have to understand modesty better. There has to be an understanding about it. There is obviously a diversity in the body of Christ. And boy, some people get upset you say that. Yes, there is a diversity. Otherwise, Asbury never would have happened. No, it wouldn't have. And that's sad. It would not. If Asbury was a holiness college, that revival may not have happened. But it did. And even though those people did not necessarily look the part of a CHM churchgoer, God used them anyway. And I think that is what caused a little bit of frustration with some people, uh, was because, well, how could God use them? So the next thing I want to cover is does looking, understanding that we have to have a conversation about defining modesty and, and realizing that there is such a, a varied understanding of modesty and standards. And, and maybe there's other things in the future that we'll kind of tear into and, and try to dive into. Um, look, we're, the, the point of today is just Deuteronomy 22.5. That, that's, that's our goal. That's it. So does Deuteronomy 22.5 define biblical modesty? Well, we're going to do the who was it for, what was it for, and we're going to go down the list. So who's it written for? Well, it's in the first five, the, the, the law, the Mosaic law consists of the first five books of the Old Testament. That's the Jewish, basically the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Torah. And you will go through and find all the different laws that were written for the Jewish people that God used as a way to introduce himself, to get to know them, to help keep them in line. Um, because at that time, the Holy Spirit was not moving as freely through them. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide us. That wasn't the case. They literally, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but they had to have a reminder that they got to obey the law. So it's for the Jewish people as part of the Mosaic law. Well, why was it written? Well, why was that verse written? To define the roles of the male and female. To define how they look. Let's say that. To define how they look. Um, the man wears the law. The man wore the law, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, men were the head of the households. They had to be a scholar. They had to be the singular provider for the family. Uh, the woman, she was to reflect the law with her godly character. Um, she was to be completely submissive and obedient to her husband. And some of the stuff we're going to get into is just, <laughs> today it's absurd. <laughs> but that's what was going on. Um Women were the emotional support of the family, and the men made the decisions, and the family or the children feared or respected them. And, and some, of the research, some of the research I got into, and I want to I clarify this, the research I've done for this, it would be well beyond our time limit for me to go through everything I've done. For the research, I've gone through the, the, the Old Testament. I've gone through uh, many of the rabbi uh, from the early church days 
for their thoughts, and, and even those who were uh, not of the Christian, we're talking Judaism. Um, I'm going through the the Talmud, which is basically a collection of the thoughts, basically, of many of the early rabbi who were going through and they were reasoning as to how best apply the law to their lives. So this has been going on for hundreds, a thousand or more years of this, we have way more than that, trying to apply the law the best way they can. Um, Next, the law... Why was Deuteronomy 22.5 written? Next was to protect the man from sin. Literally. Like, it, it's so wild. So to protect, why would you write this verse, Deuteronomy 22.5? Well, to protect the man from the woman's seduction, which, as one rabbi put it, it was greater than death. No. Oh, good grief. <laughs> it was to... to, to um, Basically, what you're going to find out is that the man's actions outside the home were were um, moderated, but the woman's sexuality was moderated. That's kind of how the law worked. And Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 22.5, and you'll find out, kind of caters to that a little bit. Uh, next, it was to prevent a man from being tempted. Um, and they went to such lengths to keep a man from being tempted. Uh, like the man had, it's almost like they had no self-control. Um, a woman would, they, they wanted to exclude her from society and literally cover any part of her that would cause, and the Hebrew word for this is erva, if I've said this correctly. Um, and basically that word erva means nakedness, lasciviousness, um, seduction, something that should not be and it's because of what the woman could be. It could be because her hair is uncovered. It could be because her leg was showing. Um, you couldn't sing if you were a woman because it may turn a man on. So ladies, way back in the very beginning of the Bible is where it became the woman's responsibility for the man's purity. It was... I can, I can, I can get behind that right here, 100%. Like it was... Very much so. It was their fault. And I even went through, and one, one of them had written, and he said that he blamed it on the fact that, yeah, the woman gave in to temptation to, to the devil with Eve. It is their fault. <laughs> they went back there, and they're the ones that gave it. It showed how easily they can be manipulated, yada, yada, yada. And this was what they're writing. So um, next, to protect the man from sin, uh, they wanted to keep worship holy for the man's sake. So the men and women are separate. Uh, because you don't want to tempt the men if they're with a woman. You, who knows what the man could do if the woman stands in front of him because of her wiles. And so <laughs> um, in the, the the temple, the women's court was actually elevated. Now, the law said you couldn't, as a man, you were forbidden to gaze at a woman. But the women, because they were not turned on with sight, they were turned on with touch. They could actually be from the women's court, which was elevated, and look down at the men, and they were fine. But the men were not allowed to look up at the women. So there's there's a problem, and it's you're just gonna have a whole bunch of men falling out in a heated. The men men are basically sexually supercharged here, and um, they they have got to be. uh, The women have got to be absolutely responsible for making sure that they don't slip up, Um, and then the penalty for a woman breaking one of these um, laws could uh, could be divorce, and the you. 
here, here's what goes on. There were, besides the Mosaic law, there were also Jewish practices. This is what they called it, Jewish practices. And the Jewish practices, I could be wrong, but this is my understanding of it, is basically things that were added on to the law. Like you have the Mosaic law, then you have the Jewish practices. In a way, it's kind of like the Quran and then the Talit, or not the Talit, the... Um, uh, I can't think, but there's basically a collection of other writers who wrote after the um, Quran was written, and in that text is where a lot of the extremist views are at. And some Muslims say, "Well, you should only listen to the Quran." Some say, "The um, maybe it is called the the, the Talit or the." I'm getting the word wrong, but anyway, somebody out there knows what I'm talking about. But this other book has been responsible for a lot of the extremist behavior because they kind of follow along with that book as well. In this situation, you had the Jewish practices in the Mosaic Law, and the Jewish practices were actually taken more serious than the Jewish law or than the, Mo than the law of Moses. And uh, if a woman broke the practices, so they were... <laughs> good grief. Um... The, uh, let me see, I don't think I went down in here and got in, do I get into it at some point down here? No, I don't. I guess I could, I could put it in here. Uh, so one thing I don't think was in the law of Moses, I could be wrong, but I think this was in the Jewish practices. Um, on Sabbath, Shabbat, a woman was forbidden in one home uh, to um, break bread in front of her husband. She could not eat in front of her husband, and it was, uh, <laughs> she could not uh, go poop where he pooped. <laughs> Um, and that was, that's a Jewish practice, evidently. Um, and, um, you, you should get in trouble. That was what it was established. Remember and, Jewish or not, this is still middle Eastern. Right. So you still have that, that mm -hmm. middle Eastern view of women. Right. And the term they used was she cannot evacuate where he evacuates. And I thought, oh, that's such a nice and diplomatic way of putting it. Just say it, man. She can't poop where he poops. <laughs> so, anyway. Uh, but the penalty for breaking these laws, which these, um, any of them, but specifically the Jewish practices, um, was that she could be divorced without consent. So a man could be like, you know what? You took a dump where I do. <laughs> I'm done with you because that was such the worst smelling thing I've ever in my life. You're done. There's something wrong with your plumbing. You're done. You're broke. And so I'm just being, I'm just being <laughs> crazy here. I'm being stupid. But... They took this stuff dead serious, and if she broke any of these, he can get rid of her. And this is why, if you go to the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, Jesus drops a bombshell on the disciples, and he says, He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And then he says, Hey, you can't put them away for just any old reason. And he gives what will, could cause them to be put away. If you go into what Paul says in Romans 7, 1 through 3, he even lays it down heavier and says, you can separate. You can't remarry if, one, if you're both still alive. Somebody has to die first. And then he links that into how Christ died for us to break away us from our marriage to sin. People will miss that concept. Anyway, getting back to this, though. When Jesus says this to the disciples, they go, oh, my word, it's best we don't even get married then. That's why they <laughs> responded the way they did. Because they used to be able to divorce for any reason, anything. Just, yeah, get rid of them. And I did some research, and I found, you know where they really got a lot of that from? 
lot of heavy influence came from Egypt because the Egyptians did the exact same thing. There was a lady who was, I forget, a lady or man, I forget who it was, but I, I got a hold of a lot of their, their uh, scholarly work and I started digging through this. They did a lot of research on it and then I coupled it with some other things and found out that, man, oh man, they, they, they copied a lot. When well, the, how long were they in Egypt? I mean, close to 400 years. So it, it made a lasting impression. So you're going to pick up the culture of right. where you are. Mm-hmm. Which is why God immediately is having to lay these laws down as the people are going into the wilderness because it's like, man, oh man, these people are so messed up. Well, it's because they were in Egypt for so long. Isn't that a biblical description, though, of what happens to a new believer? Before you know Christ, you're in the land of Egypt. For years, you act like an Egyptian. You eat like an Egyptian. You behave like an Egyptian. You think like an Egyptian. I'm not anti-Egyptian. I just hear me out. <laughs> I'm, I'm using this as a as a as a as a illustration here. But when you're saved, you're brought out of Egypt, and you're going out of Egypt. But you still hang on to some of these practices. But the CHM would say, "Oh man, right now you got to drop it right now." But I'm going to tell you that God knew there had, was going to be a learning curve, and there had to be guidance from God. So here comes the law to try to remind them. And man, oh man, God is forgiving because he slowly but surely has to get these people back into the right way of thinking. Because by the time they left Egypt, guess what? God, They're basically Egyptians. Yeah, yeah, yes. And, and God, in a way, was almost more of like a myth or a legend. They still knew who he was, uh, but... Man, they were so far removed. Anyway, this is a completely different topic. But <laughs> anyway, I say all that to say that um, you know Jesus basically kind of set straight the uh, thinking of the people there that you couldn't just divorce for any old reason. But the reason they thought that was because we're going back and looking at these Jewish practices and the Mosaic Law. That's why they felt that they could literally get rid of their wife for any reason. Uh, next up, the um, Deuteronomy 22.5 is uh, the concept behind it was to protect the woman from sin. The Mosaic law existed to protect the woman from sin. Um, she should not be touched. You don't touch a woman. Um, one of the rabbi had written and he said, um, if you touch a woman's pinky, he said it is the same as if you touched her privates. That is what they said. You could not have contact with a woman. Heaven forbid you come into contact with a woman who's on her period. Hmm. You, you are you are defiled at that point. Um, she should be modest in her dress and her behavior. I'm not saying this. I'm, I'm giving you what the law what the law the law of Moses says. Um, her eyes should be cast down and her speech moderate. This is, these are things that I'm bringing to you from what the rabbi, apply, how they applied the law. Her speech should be, her eyes should be cast down. Almost like she's a zombie. You're just kind of looking down. Yes, yes. She must maintain modesty even in her most private chambers. There was one rabbi, uh, one woman, and she had evidently given birth to many of these different rabbi through the years. Uh, her, like her family line had these rabbi. Her children were becoming rabbi. And she received praise because even in their home, they maintained their head coverings. They, they, they did everything. Like they literally went around the house dressed to the nines just like they went outside. I mean, it, there was no difference. It's like even in private, it was public. So how was this, how was this law applied? 
Uh, the Talmud reveals rabbinical thought concerning its application. And, uh, well, we, we read that the women were isolated, they were covered, and they're limited in their outward expression. Uh, they had even toyed with the idea. They'd done it for a while. I, I don't know if it, how long they did it, but there was a period of time where it was as if the women, they thought, you know what, it's best if we just put them in home, put them in the home, restrict them, don't let them come out, and let the man go out. It's his world, and they stay home. Um, men were seen as easily falling prey to them, so much of what is done is meant to keep the men from falling. The glory of the woman was her hair. Now, I'm going to tell you something that's interesting. Uh, you won't find a verse in the Bible that, that says a woman should wear a dress, a man wears pants, uh, or is very clear when it comes to modesty in that regard. But you will find scripture to talk about a woman's hair. That was stressed. A woman's hair was her glory. And this was very much an understood thing in Jewish culture. And according to uh, research that I did, and even going through like the Talmud, um, she wore a covering on her head that went clear on down her back. Very, very long. You ever see like these movies or whatever, you'll see like Mary, the Jesus mother and things like that. And they always wear this headdress that kind of goes all the way down. Same thing. Mm -hmm. But very long. I mean, very long. Um, men were a little different. And we're going to get into the description of the men from historical evidence. And this is what is so cool. Um, so concerning historical evidence of the law in practice when it comes to modesty or their dress, there's something called the Black Obelisk of Shalamansir III, and he's the king of Assyria from 858 BC to 824. And um, I don't want to get on a side topic, but boy, you go into and do your research on how fearful, the, uh, how mean the Assyrians were. Oh, good grief. They were <laughs> bad. But there is, at this point in time, um, Israel as a nation is divided. You have the 10 tribes in the north in Israel. You have Judah in the south with two tribes. And Jehu is the king of Israel. Now, he had overthrown, Ahab and Jezebel had been overthrown. And Israel had come out of that horrible practice of idols and whatever else was going on. And Jehu was now king. And, um, but they are a vassal of Assyria. So there is this black obelisk of limestone that exists. Um, and it's basically a record that the Assyrian king, Shalamanser, kept of uh, this occasion where various diplomats came from a surround, the surrounding kingdom, kingdoms to pay their respects. Jehu's one of them, and they write his name on there and describe even what he brought. And it gives a description of Jehu, um, and there's Jewish men behind him walking along, and they're carrying different things or whatever. And um, this is what is so interesting. When you look at Jehu, he's actually on his knees, and he's bowed before Shalamanser III, and he's paying reverence to him. I mean, you don't. The Syrians come in, and they wipe out your, your kingdom and everything. And the things he gave them, he gave them gold, he gave them silver, he gave them a gold bowl, which I highly doubt was a simple bowl. It was probably something grand. Um, gave them spears, and he even gave him, even list, he gave this king the, king the rod from the king's hand. So your scepter he gives, the, he gives Shalomancer his scepter. So literally saying, O king, I am your vassal. I don't have the authority. You do. And he, and, and he gives it to him as, as part of this Amish. Or, not Amish, but homage. 
I want people to know. I didn't say Amish. I said Amish. Amish. <laughs> yeah. So, but there's something else about these Jewish men. They're, you look at their outfits, and there's different things. They're wearing caps. They uh, have beards. Jehu's hair is about to his shoulder. Um, and it's similar with the other guys, from what I can recall. And their shoes are different from the, some of the other people's going in to visit. Their shoes, you ever see these Arabian shoes that kind of have toes that tip up? When mm-hmm. you're, like, that's what the Jewish shoe was like. Some other people there that are coming from other countries, you can look at their shoes and they're flat with the toes pointing out like a normal shoe, but the Jews point it up. It's unique. Um, so at one point, that was how they dressed. Um, but something else stuck out to me, and it was the fact that Jehu and the Jewish men had tassels. Now, the other people, had t- they all had little fringes on their outfits, but the tassels that Jehu and his men had was different. It looked different, and it, it, it perked my interest. I thought, what's going on with those things? And I started to dig into those, into those tassels, and I thought, are they evident other places? I'll get back to those. There's a second historical reference we can look at, and it's called the Lachish Relief. And it's basically an inscription showing now, several years later, at this point, the northern kingdom of Israel, this is after the time of Jehu, the northern kingdom of Israel has fallen. The ten tribes of Israel have been taken into captivity. All that's left is the kingdom of Judah. And Judah is not behaving as they should before God. So God is bringing the Assyrians down on them as punishment. And this new king, Sennacherib, he is starting to pull pieces of the towns and cities away from the kingdom of Judah. He's conquering them as he makes his way down. Now, Judah eventually is conquered by the Babylonians, but the Assyrians put a heavy hurting on them. And in this relief, you're able to see that there are, and this is what historians, archaeologists believe, many of them, that it is a representation of these Jewish people who are being led away into captivity. At one point, there was over two, according to the Syrian records, over 200,000 of them were led away into captivity. Okay. And they're, they're marched away and they're playing these little lutes or lyres or whatever. They're playing their instruments. And you look into the Assyrian customs and when they would take captives and march them into their land, um, they would have them play the music of their homeland as entertainment, which probably felt like an insult to those people and made them homesick that they were having to do that and leave. But you look at the men as they're moving, they look pretty similar to the previous relief to the previous obelisk. They look similar. This time their robes are rolled up to about their knees um, as they're marching along with their families, the guys that are playing the instruments, theirs are down. Um, but those tassels, you, you can't find the tassels. But you look at the women, and the women are very identifiable because they're sitting there with a robe that nearly goes to their ankle, and they've got a headdress around the top of their hair that goes all the way back down. That matches up with what we were reading about in the law. The tassels are not necessarily there, and I don't know if that was because, because remember now, these people were being punished by God. The Assyrians were that punishment. And something had happened where these are missing, these tassels are missing, and now they're going off into punishment. And I'm trying to put the pieces together as I'm looking at this. And then I go over to Numbers 1538, and this is what I read. Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations and that they put upon the fringes of the borders a ribbon of blue. Now, I believe the technical term for these are talits or 
No, 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 zitzitz. That's like the, the, the term that I understand them as, these little tassels. And the idea, as I re researched this, was that it says, the ch well, it says the children of Israel. And I thought, wait, children of Israel? That should be the men and the women. They should all have these tassels, but I don't see them on the women's outfits. I'll see them on the men's, but I don't see them on the women's. Then I got into the Hebrew, and I looked at that term, children of Israel. It's translated in the Hebrew as the sons of Israel. There's a distinction. It's a stink bug, babe. He's gone. I flicked him for you. Oh, I was going to flick him. Okay. And have fun doing it. <laughs> As you may understand our problem where we have the occasional stink bug that gets in the house. Probably hitches a ride on the dog. Anyway, you look at Numbers 1538, and it says that throughout, the, throughout their generations, it's an order, it's a commandment, throughout their generations, they are to put these tassels, the men are, on their outfits as a reminder of the law. They don't have the Holy Spirit, but they do have to have a reminder of the law. So they wear these tassels. And so now, now that I understand this, let's look back at Deuteronomy 22.5 and let's see if there's anything there that would kind of hint at a distinction. If I go to Deuteronomy 22.5, it says this, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. But Something to look at is that word pertaineth and a woman's garment, okay? And you're like, oh, well, it says they just can't swap clothes. No, it doesn't. Go into the Hebrew. Read it for yourself. For the man, when you say what pertains to a man, that the Hebrew for that means an article, utensil, or vessel. A woman's garment in that verse, in the Hebrew, is a wrapper or a mantle. So then I start sitting there thinking, oh, wait a minute. There's a distinction. I look at these tassels, and I did some research, and I found out women are restricted from wearing them. They can't wear them. The men are not supposed to wear the headdress that the woman has. It is supposed to go over her hair at all times because the hair is a, I mean, the only way I could put it, it's a turn on for men. And according to the Talmud and what the rabbi said, it is to be covered because of that erva word where it could lead to nakedness. It could lead to the men being tempted. So the woman's head is to be covered and men can't get into that. As a matter of fact, if you dig even further into that term, wrapper or mantle or the woman's garment, even deeper in the strongest concordance, it means the man can't wear something that even provides the shape of a woman. They can't get into something that is the shape of the woman, that goes with the shape of a woman. Well, with the women, I even look at those reliefs from Lachish, and they're all wearing these long head pieces that go down. The men are not. And then the men have their little, their, little, uh, their little fringes. There's a distinction there. There's a difference. There's, there's something unique. So when you start to look at Deuteronomy 22.5, it's not simply saying a man has to wear pants 
and a woman has to wear skirts, you start to dive into the culture and understand there is such a deeper meaning behind it. That women wore this mantle or this cloak over their head that was something that highlighted the glory of their hair, but also covered it to help the man avoid temptation through the term, as the Hebrew says, erva, in which they could be enticed by the woman because of her beauty, because of her seduction qualities, whatever, however it's listed. The woman could not wear this article or this utensil or vessel that the man had because it served its own purpose with the man and was reserved for only the men through their generations that they could wear it. There's a distinction. You can start to see that there's characteristics here and that they are separate from one another. They're, they're distinctly different. In the Jewish culture, this is how they separated them. Is this still relevant today? Well, it is. Concerning the Jews, uh, women cover their hair uh, after marriage. Uh, and many of them, obviously, there are a lot of them that have laxed on this, uh, but they cover their hair after marriage uh, in many Jewish communities. Um, there is the prayer shawl that the men wear that's called the talit. And they have those tassels on there. And it's something that women are not supposed to wear. Um, and there, I read an article that there was a girl, and I, I don't understand exactly what her, what her position was, but it seemed that what she did was she had, if I understood correctly, had moved to Israel. And um, she wanted to really become engrossed in the culture and, and be identified as a, a, a Hebrew person. And she saw, I guess, that these, these little uh, zitzits, these tassels that people were wearing, well, men are wearing them. And so what she did was she actually went down and she walked into a men's store and she bought those tassels. And she modified them to fit on her shirt and she put them on and she started walking around the town and she said... She got so many sideways glances, especially from boys who were looking at her like, what are you doing wearing that? That's for men. That's for, but what are you doing? And in, in their culture, basically she's cross-dressing because she's wearing something that is reserved for men, but not women. So what about the Gentiles? There's obviously a distinction there. You have this that's going on. And um, in, 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 in those of you that have been around uh, the CHM, you're going to hear a lot of people talk about Deuteronomy 22.5, and they're going to mention the fact that, well, men wear pants, women wear skirts, and Deuteronomy 22.5 will um, support that. Inevitably, somebody will bring up, oh, yeah, well, what about the fact where you can't eat shrimp, you can't eat this, you can't eat pork, blah, blah, blah. And they'll say, well, there's three parts to the law. There's the ceremonial, there's the civil, and there's the moral. Um, that, is, that is a very shaky crutch to lean on. Um, because you start, you start to dig into that and you start to say, well, where in the world are you going to divide this? 
Uh, because the world certainly knows there was a Saturday Night Live episode where they got on there and they made fun because of the Christians because the Christians were against homosexuality. And they said, oh, you're against that, but, oh, you're going to eat shrimp, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And so the, basically the church ends up with egg on their face because, in a way, they look like they're hypocrites. Because they're saying, don't do that, but we can do this. So the Gentiles, and let, let's do a little bit of history here. We know the Mosaic Law exists in Jesus' time, and this is something that's so interesting, and I do want to cover this as well. But did you know that Jesus also wore a robe with tassels on it? If you go into that verse, and I don't have it pulled up, have mercy, but some of you could probably find it. You'll find it, and it says that the woman with the issue of blood, it might be in Matthew, the woman with the issue of blood, it says she reaches out to touch the border of his garment. And at that moment, virtue went out of him. And he says, who touched me? If you look in the Greek and look at what she really reached for, she reached for one of the tassels hanging from his robe. He was wearing this like any other Jewish man would, even though Jesus is the law, even though Jesus is the savior of the universe. He's the sacrifice. He's looking just like any other Jewish man and he himself is wearing a robe. He himself has the tassels. And it's interesting that this woman reached for one of those tassels. And it says she was healed. Just something I wanted to throw out there. That yes, we will, you can find biblical evidence to show that yes, even in Jesus' time, they followed that. They did that. They wore that. But what about the Gentiles? So here we have the Gentiles. And um, the Gentile church is growing, the Jewish church is growing, the Gentiles are being saved. And uh, if you go over, um, there is, um, I'm not sure if it's in uh, Acts, maybe, I forget exactly what text it is, uh, where it's at exactly, but I'll give you the kind of the Cliff Notes version. The, the Gentile and Jewish believers are together eating. Now, when I say Jewish believers, Peter's one of them. And they're, they're having a meal. And one of the things in the law is that you can't eat with unbelievers. Like, you can't eat with people that are unclean like that, that are, hmm. that are basically pagan. You can't eat with them. But Peter is saved, and Peter is obviously kind of slacking a bit on the practice of the law. He's eating with these Gentile believers. And I imagine he's having a good time. Well, then the next thing you know, you've got some people that show up from the Jewish church. And, and uh, I don't know if it was Jerusalem specifically or, or where they were located. Um, it's awful. You go through stuff like that and you read that text and, and, and it's like on the, t and then the next thing you know, you can't even hardly remember. But anyway, Peter starts to feel peer pressure because he goes, oh no, word will get back to the church in Jerusalem that I ate with Gentiles and that's going to cause some problems for me. And he just, he just cuts from eating with the Gentiles, and he starts sitting with the, with the Jews. Well, guess what? This has a domino effect. And other Jews, they also rescind their fellowship from the Gentiles, and they all start eating separately. So now you've got a divided body of Christ. And Peter, or not Peter, but Paul publicly berates him for this. And, uh, and I covered this in our last podcast about the bubbles that we live in and things like that and how it was leading the, uh, by Peter setting that example, it had a, it had a chance of, of leading the Gentiles back in, like into legalism. Um, it was dividing the body of Christ. It was showing superiority of the Jewish believer over the Gentile believer. 
Uh, but this, this, there's a, there's a conversation that is had uh, over in Acts chapter 15, verses 28 through 29. And the whole book of Acts, or uh, Acts 15 covers this, but for, for the sake of time, I'm going to look at these two verses. Um, Cliff Notes version of this, the, they get together and they say, you know what? There's people that are preaching that the Gentiles should be circumcised and follow the law. And the Gentiles kind of panic because guess what? You know what that means? If you have to follow the law, you got to get cut on. I mean, circumcision. And man, that's not a very popular thing. Especially not as an adult. No. And so there's a lot of people that are kind of worried like, oh man, really? I'm going to get cut on? Like, this is terrible. <laughs> you know, go back in the Old Testament. There was a city of people that actually wanted to um, intermarry with the, with the Hebrews and with their women. And the men of the Hebrew tribe said, uh, oh, well, if you're going to do that, well, you have to be circumcised. And the men of the town said, all right, that's good. Yeah, we'll do that. And so they circumcised them. And they said the men were laid up on their bed. And what did the Hebrews did? They invaded the town and got them <laughs> because they were, too, they were too in bed and they couldn't defend themselves. You know, so obviously <laughs> it has a detrimental effect to where it will lay you up for a while. <laughs> you can't get up and grab your sword and defend yourself because you've got other complications going on downstairs. <laughs> so anyway, um, so they have this meeting. What do we do with the Gentiles? They're concerned about the law. They're concerned about getting cut on with through circumcision. You know, they don't want that. And that's a kind of an unpopular thing. Uh, what do we do? So I believe it's James who stands up and he kind of sets the, he sets the tone. And uh, Acts chapter 15, verses 20 through 29 says this. Um, and this is their reply to the Gentiles. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. Now, people want to sit there and say that the Gentile is bound to the Mosaic law. No. No, he's not. No, she's not. Gentile's not bound to that law. And they'll say, oh, but it's a separate thing. Go through here and look at this, what they give them. They give them four requirements, and that's it. If I've done my research correctly, three of them come from the Mosaic Law. One comes from the New Testament. And they provide this to the Gentiles, and when the Gentiles get news of it, there's celebration. They're like, hey, hey, honey, I don't have to be cut on. This is amazing. You know, can you imagine? You know, you don't have to go to the night. And there was, there was rejoicing. They're happy, you know, ob for obvious reasons. But can you imagine the relief of not having to deal with that burden of the law? You've been delivered. Jesus Christ died in your place to satisfy the law. But now they want to make you go under it again. In this situation, the Gentiles are not under that law. And Paul says this many times. Uh, if you go into, uh, and, 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 and this, is, this is a side note, uh, even if Deuteronomy 22.5 is relegated to a strictly Jewish thing, which it is, if you go into 1 Timothy 2.9, people speak about, well, there's modesty there. It talks about the braiding of hair and the jewelry and things like that and the gold. If you want to learn more about that, we got a podcast about maybe four or five episodes ago where we go into what was going on in Ephesus and the worship of Artemis and how that was all related and the reason behind that and that it was a specific instance where that was being dealt with. We're not talking about something that was overall being addressed, but a specific situation. Timothy is going to that church. He's going to preach to these people, deal with these people, deal with women that have been involved in the worship of Artemis. And 1 Timothy 2.9 is a letter to him from Paul that 
sets him up and say, hey, you're going into this church. This is what you're dealing with. This is how you deal with it. But looking back at Deuteronomy 22.5, I'm not here to say wear pants or wear a skirt. I'm here to say that that particular verse was written to the Jewish people to help set them apart as distinctly different and that neither one of them was to go over and wear a specific item that was setting them apart. In the woman's case, a mantle or a cloak, we look and we see inscriptions that show them wearing this. The men don't wear it. In the men, we see a cloak with fringes and tassels on it that were specifically for the men and the boys down through their generations to remind them of the law. So what do we do to strive for modesty then? How do we strive for modesty? Draw attention to the inside, not the outside. You want to be, you want to be a Christian and go for modesty? Don't make it all about you. Don't go out there and try to, try to be a thing. You want people to get to know you, not to just see you. Doesn't mean you can't look nice. No. But... The attitude sometimes and the countenance speaks yes. more volumes than the dress that you put on it. And dress, pants, I'm talking about clothing. Right. The clothing, the way you dress it up. Because quite frankly, when I worked in a hospital, I wore scrubs. Yeah. I wore, I wore scrub pants. And never once, because I tried to keep my countenance, and I'm not bragging on myself, but I got asked many times where I went to church wasn't because I was wearing a skirt. Mm -hmm. Get to know me before you see me. What am I talking about here? People sometimes want to know, why doesn't God just show himself? Where's God? Why didn't he just visually just show up? Why didn't he say, ta-da, here I am, get to know me? If God showed up and he revealed himself right now, and said, this is how I want you to get to know me. Oh, there would, be, there, would be, there would be celebration. People would be joyous. Oh, that's God. Wow, that's God. And the eyes are fulfilled. But as, as it usually goes, eventually, you look at something long enough and stuff just gets old. And what God is trying to do is to say, before you see me, Get to know me through my word, through a relationship with me. If you don't want to communicate with me, if you don't want to learn about me, why would you even care to see me? God wants us in a relationship with him to get to know him better to learn about him, to absorb all we can about him. Because then when we do see him, we truly know him. Next, don't be a thing. Why would you want to be a thing? What is a thing? It's something shiny. It's eye-catching. But people lose interest. It gets old. It fades with time. It's something that you look at it and that's it. You know everything about it. You see it. It's, it's just, there it is. But you want to be someone who actually attracts 
in a way that's, hey, there's more about me. If you want to get to know me, then get to know me. I'm not all this outward frame. There's more to me inside that's deeper. And you know what? If, the, if we all applied 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 through 20, you want to grow as a believer and understand modesty? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20 says this, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Verse 20, For ye are bought with a price, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are whose? Which are God's. You belong to God because he paid the ultimate price for you. If that's the case and you apply that concept to your life that you are God's, that you, you belong to God, this temple belongs to God, the spirit belongs to God, how should I best represent him? How should I best act while I'm in this body? How should I best treat people? I don't care if you're a Baptist, you're a Mennonite, you are a Presbyterian, you're CHM, whatever. You practice that and you'll find yourself changing tremendously what you watch, what you listen to, how you speak. It starts to change. When you realize, you don't own this. God owns this. For Galatians 5.18 says, If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And the verse specifically, yes, says, But if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. The Holy Spirit came. Christ died. The Holy Spirit came to the believers to lead them, to guide them, you say, Lord, save me. Jesus, save me. Forgive me of my sins. And people start on that path of regeneration. And they start on that path of salvation. And, and they walk as a new creature in Christ. And at that moment, the relationship begins. The journey begins. Sanctification begins. It's a journey. It's a journey. And as this happens, when you're saved, God's going to begin to nip and tuck here and there. He's going to make changes through the leadings of the Holy Spirit in your life. Where we have problems many times, and it's not just in the CHM, it's in lots of different churches. But in the CHM, it is very much evident. People feel that they know better than the Holy Spirit. And you must do as they do rather than what the Holy Spirit leads you to. Understanding that, we also understand there will be diversity in the body of Christ. There will be Christian women in pants. There will be Christian women in skirts. There will be Christian men in shorts. There will be Christian men in t-shirts. There will be Christian men with beards and without beards. There will be Christian women with trimmed hair, with long hair. There will be diversity because we are all at different levels. And the Holy Spirit is guiding, he's leading, and we are all on this journey together. And rather than sitting there and throwing rocks at each other as we're all in the escalators heading the same direction, why don't we all sit there and start pulling together? The concept of Sinaeus. Sinaeus. It's another Hebrew Jewish term. And it's about your eye only sees things. 
you know, at the end, the end of, at the end, what's the difference between two inches, three inches, four inches? It's not about inches. It's about you. It's about you. Is there something to know about you or is, or are you something to look at? Uh, an eye sees things. Are you a thing? Are you a person? When you dress Cineas, which is modesty, when you dress modest, you're saying you're not a thing. I'm not interested in you seeing me. Either be my friend and get to know me or leave me alone. Modesty is not limited to the clothing that you wear, although some people, I think, they feel that modesty, the clothing you wear is a symptom of your modesty. Mm -hmm. It's not truly modesty. Modesty shows itself in the form of the two persons that you are who you are privately and who you are publicly. And if you are following the leading of God and you are the same indoors and the same outdoors, man, you've got it right there. But there are some people that they will act differently in public because they're putting on a face, they're putting on a front, you know, and, and they want to, they want to look the part. They want to look like they got case in point. Those of you that are affiliated with their, that went to GBS you're going to know why I'm talking about Vine Street and some of the areas through there. Uh, there was a, it was, it was just so wild. You'd go through Vine Street and um, you'd see people driving around in their Cadillac Escalades and they've got their Lincoln Town cars and all these other things that they got and they're up on their great, at the time they had spinners, chrome wheel spinners, and they got all the, the massive Mysterios and stuff. They look like they're successful. They look real cool. They got the money. And then you see the cars and they are literally parked in, in front of junk for homes. Mm -hmm. And it's because when they're out and about, they are putting forward that, that public image, but it's not who they truly are. It's not because then when you go to their home, and you see where they live, that's who they are. That's who they are. And the idea of having a true understanding of modesty is being in sync with the Holy Spirit, obeying the leadership of God, and His nudging you along your journey, and having that outward appearance that you put on in public, and that private person being the same, in sync with God. You practice that, and you'll find so much changing for the better in your life, in your relationship with God, in your true understanding about modesty. People focus on the external characteristics of a person, but not the essence of a person. Sometimes we need to rein in the external self so that the inner can be seen instead. And it's not just for women, it's also for men. Guys dress flashy sometimes. Man, you got the really nice sunglasses. You've got the real cool looking watch. You've got the real nice suit. You got the real nice shirt. You got the nice whatever. And you, you, you really, really dress yourself up or whatever. And, however, and there's nothing wrong with looking nice. But sometimes people, even guys, go to extremes. You can go to an excess. Mm -hmm. And you have to ask yourself, is that modesty? You have to understand what modesty truly is. It's not just the outside it's the inside. If that inside is modest, the outside will be too. There is a change that begins on a person when they are a believer. And modesty, you have to understand, is so much more than do you wear a skirt or do you wear pants? There is a world more to it. So in summary, this, this whole deal, my point, my, my goal was to highlight that Deuteronomy 22.5 was written as part of the Mosaic Law. 
to address the distinct characteristics between the Jewish, the Jewish man and the Jewish woman who were under the Mosaic law at that time. When the Gentiles came, they are not under that law. But, but you will find evidence through Scripture that there is a distinction and that there is a modesty. But it is so much more than just an outward thing. You can also understand precedence a little bit if you go back and look at that law because you think, you know, God, if God said it that way for the Jew, it may not necessarily be that identical scripture. It may not be tassels. It may not be a cloak. But God is also probably fairly consistent with how he does things down through time that he does want the men to look like men and women to look like women. God says he made male, he made female. They are obviously distinctly different. There is there's, there's, uh, strengths and weaknesses to both of them. And they should maintain that identity that each of them has been gifted. The world today wants to cross them and say, I want to go to the other side. I want to be this. What you were assigned at birth is what you are. God planned it that way. That's, how, that's who you are. That's, that's your DNA. You, you can't fight that. God made you that way for a reason. You're male or you're female. He made you that way for a reason. And where we start to have problems is where we start crossing the two. That's dangerous territory. Because if you do look, one thing you can do, you can surmise, you look back and God said, hey, he told the men there in Jewish times, he said, I don't want you wearing something that has an image of a woman. Don't look like a woman. Okay. You know, I'm not under the Mosaic law, but I get from God what he's saying there. That, you know what? It's probably something similar to the fact that when I go out and about or when I handle myself, don't act like a woman. You know, you're, you're different. You are a different. Woman, embrace that femininity. Did I say that right? Femininity. Femininity. Yeah. I can't say that super fast ten times. Always all over the place. <laughs> but women should embrace who they are and embrace that feminine side. That's easier to say. And that they are made distinctly beautiful and unique by God. Sadly, we are in culture where that is being attacked and it's being smeared, it's being smudged, and it's really sad. And um, God doesn't want it to be that way. He wants us to maintain that uniqueness about each other. But at the same time, we don't need to be in a congregation looking at somebody coming in and judging them because they look different and slamming them and saying, as soon as they walk in the door, hey, you need to look like me. Well, they may not have the same light you do. God is putting them on their own path. Let God do it. You preach the gospel and let God clean them up. Anyway, uh, I hope this made sense. I really do. I, I kind of fretted about this one. I was really trying to figure out how I could best convey this. But, you know, I've seen so many people that would... Uh, take that text and throw it out there as something that should apply to uh, people today. And it's something to be looked at as something that applied to the Jews. And why was it written? And I hope that we kind of covered that today uh, as to why it was written and who it was written for and the purpose that it served. Um, so in no way was I trying to go through and say, oh, you should dress this way or you should uh, look this way or whatever. Um, 
the whole purpose was basically to say, and from a historical perspective, this is why it was written and this is what was going on. Um, so, and that we should live in a godly manner, obey the leading of the Holy Spirit, and if we do that, we will abide by biblical modesty. Because there is enough of a trail in the New Testament to give you an idea as to how you should be. And that's something maybe we'll go into at another time. But this was just to address Deuteronomy 22.5 and kind of the kind of what the CHM has done with that. And, and I kind of feel it's been a misrepresentation of that verse and that it meant something totally different with reminding people, men especially, of the law and women as well of the law and that they should be unique in that culture, which we should all be unique. But they specifically had articles that they wore that separated them in that time. Anyway, I think that's about it. Janelle, you got anything to add? I'm good. All right, man, this has been a long one. Anyway, we will chat at y'all later. Hope y'all have a great weekend and we'll see you. Thanks. Thanks.